welcome to Philly People Now Deceased, a Philadelphia history podcast. Each time we meet, we talk about interesting Philadelphians who have passed away, which makes this a history podcast. We kind of get our start from a guy named Henry Simpson, who wrote a book called The Lives of Eminent Philadelphians Now Deceased, way back in 1859, which curiously left out anyone who wasn't white and male. So now we're redoing it with, like, everybody. coming back mm-hmm. Leonard are you there I'm here I'm just I'm sorry I was a little I was vibing on that on that theme song I'm just sitting yeah. here popping my head like Jay-Z uh, it's uh. a pretty awesome song I'm pretty happy with it I got it oh let me turn it off <laughs> okay but, um, hey uh how long has it been since we've done a podcast uh, we haven't done a podcast since the before time, which was approximately 47 years ago by my latest calculation. Before time, in the ancient days when we all went to the park in the pool. Yeah, it was a glorious that. time when we would lollygag in the CVS. I very Enjoying the decisions between the hair products. I very remember an antiquated custom where people would press their palms into each other's palms and shake them. This, thankfully, has been dispensed of. Well, I find it very difficult not to do so. I, I do feel a little bit, I don't know, isolated, but... I've gotten it. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go back to not an accent. <laughs> going down a bad rabbit hole there. But, no, right. Uh, but uh, I, I found that the uh, the nod, the one, the single, you make eye contact and you give a single nod, like a little bit of a bow of your head. Actually, the Japanese, interestingly, have always done this, right? They bow mm. and their shaking hands is still not really, uh, it never really took off there. And no one really knows why yet, but coronavirus never took hold in Japan. And maybe that has something to do with it. Fascinating. Well, I've learned that as a lot, there's a lot I can tell with my eyes. I can, I mean, I can communicate with my eyes. Mm-hmm. So I am now able, able to communicate a smile when I see people, which is kind of nice. Yeah, you can kind of tell somebody smiling in there. You're like, oh, yeah. there's a smile happening in there. Either that or they have gas. I'm not really sure, but it's probably a smile. Yeah. You know, the other thing that hasn't happened is, um, you know, social problems i mean it's just been so nice and calm since mm. the last time we talked yeah that's um some i saw on twitter the other day they said uh in you know a hundred years from now people are going to ask historians what month of 2020 is their specialty that's pretty funny <laughs> it's true i mean there's so much to talk about i mean you know june was just like cray cray but I mean, may was also nuts i mean I, you know, listen, I've been protesting for the longest and I, I kind of have been on the anti-racist thing for a long time. So this is not a big surprise to me, all these things that are rising up. What is a surprise to me is how many white people are actually starting to become true anti-racists. And that's kind of encouraging to see, but it's also very discouraging to see how many Karens are out there. Um, and just refusing right now to really acknowledge any type of oppression. So it's it's been really, really a fun time. 
See, this is how long it's been since we've had the podcast together. I don't think the word Karen was a thing the last time we recorded. That's how long <laughs> it's been. It was BK in the BK era. It's been a long time. But today we are going to talk about, um, I did some prep for us. And what, what I was thinking was when I read, when I prepped this, and this is before kind of, this was like months ago, right? So this was just during pandemic, just, just the pandemic, not like the social unrest. But I was like, all right, well, I really want to talk about the people who are helping us through this pandemic. Cause my friend Annie is a doctor. And so Javi and I would do stuff like cook for the doctors and Ooh, just Javi. take them stuff. Javi's my, my awesome husband, creative genius behind Javi's Gravy Sauce for Dogs, www.javiesgravy.com. I, oh, yes. I can do my own advertising. It's my podcast. Um, but anyway, we would do that. And, uh, and it just got me thinking about all the stress that all of these uh, caregivers are giving. And uh, I do want to do a podcast on sort of radical black abolitionists um, to talk about just how long it's been since we've, we've been fighting this fight. But I don't want to go into that today. Today, I was just going to really focus on sort of an appreciative episode on people who give care. And so that's what the focus of this is. And there's a lot of Philadelphia history in here as well. Um, and we're going to go back to uh, the Civil War. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. So you have to pull up your, um, you can now open, ta-da, please open. And it's going to be a highly visual episode because there's, it's, and what we'll do is we'll post this for everybody, but um, I kind of interested in your sort of reaction. Um, military so, map of Philadelphia. Thank you. Make that thing big. Use the link and make it massive. Philadelphia. So this is the first thing. And we are going to talk about a person, but I'm going to give some setup for that person. This um, Philadelphia was a hospital city during the Civil War. And I don't think people understand how many hospitals we're in Philadelphia. So we're looking at a military map of Philadelphia from 1861 to 1865. And all it does is show, first of all, where the encampments are, but also where the hospitals were. And there were like 20. And in Center City, there was like 10. Um, and so it was just a major medical center. And I think, you know, when you look at this map, Len, like what, what surprises you on here? Um. I got to say not a whole lot, like all these encampments up north of Girard College makes sense because that was all just woods. Um, that would make sense where the you know military would be camped out. Um, I mean, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of hospitals in Center City. I'm just looking at the key here. Yeah. The hotels were some of the are mentioned here. Were they like actual were they treating people in hotels or were those like uh Maybe those were like places where you'd recover after you got out of a hospital. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't uh, I didn't research the hotels so much, but if, if they're on the military map, I bet you it has something to do with that, right? Like, so you're in the hospital, you recover, and then you have to go somewhere after that for recouping. So that that would make a lot of sense. There's also yeah. refreshment saloons, yeah, number 21. Union Volunteer Refreshment Saloon. That must have been a scene. That must have been a lot of fun. <laughs> Washington Square. But yeah, but I mean, you know, there's just a ton of them. 
And um, so that's kind of the first point is that Philadelphia, uh, sort of almost the way it is now. Like, I mean, if you look at West Philly, that's all hospital. Right. Like all hospital. So that kind of energy maybe got to start in the Civil War. So the second point, so this is the second thing you didn't know about the Civil War in Philadelphia, was that it had two of the largest hospitals in the world. One was called Mower, M-O-W-E-R, and Mower was in Germantown. And the other one was called, and I know you know this because you go to Clark Park all the time. Uh, Maybe I don't. Ah, so there is a historical marker outside of uh, Clark Park. Oh, I've seen this on Baltimore Avenue, and I've already seen it. (laughs) Yeah, you've always ignored it. And that historical marker says that at some point, there was a massive hospital called Satterley. And Satterley was, um, so first we're going to talk about Mower, because I I want you to understand the freaking huge scale of these hospitals. So if you go to slide three, uh, we're looking at a, a compound. Um, and the way that these hospitals were built, they were built in what's called pavilion style. So there were pavilion hospitals. So they were like basically long rows, I guess what we would call them today as barracks, but like long rows um, arranged in a radial style, but going out for acres. Yeah, and the central courtyard here looks like it's, 40 acres are kind of huge. Massive, massive. So um, like sadly, uh, actually, let me go to Mower first. So Mower was only built. So, and here's the other thing. They tore it down. Like they built it in 1863 and then tore it down in 1865. This is like the centennial. They did, they did all this, you know, incredible, crazy architecture and infrastructure. And then they just tore it all down. Right. It's crazy. Um, there were 47 wards. So each one of these little pavilions is a ward. So there were 47 of them. There were 3,600 beds. And it could hold a total of 20,000 people. And where was Mower exactly? So Mower, if you look at slide four, you'll see an overlay. It was like by where Windmore Station is today. And... Um, there is actually a water tower recreation center. That water tower was built for saddle, uh, for mower. So this is up that, in Chestnut Hill. This is up in Chestnut Hill. Exactly. It's interesting how they, oh, the overlay does not match the grid at all because this was put here way before there was a street grid in that part of Philadelphia. Yeah. I'm using this um, thing from uh, it's, it's from um, the free library where you can overlay maps on the current grid. And so I find it very, very cool, but to to give you an idea, let's see. So we're looking at, um, so I didn't write this down. Wait a minute. It's Germantown road and this other road, which is, so anyway, I, I, it was by, it was, it's, Oh my God. I'm like, blanking right now on exactly where it was but let's just say by windmore station mm-hmm. um in chestnut hill um right by so one of the things they wanted to do was keep it right by the train station so that they could you know basically unload people pretty easily and this hospital oh. had yeah i see a train now in the, in the image there's a train station at the edge of the site yes oh right oh you can see oh there it is wow i didn't even notice that before mm-hmm. foreground 
<laughs> right. So basically they would just bring the train is right there at the front entrance of the hospital. So you could just bring the wounded directly to the hospital. Wow. Um, it had running water. It had running hot water. Um, they had special medical wards for the isolated patients with infections. They had centralized storage. So that central area that you see for supplies, they had flush toilets. They had even uh, its own band. And it was designed like a band, like a house band <laughs> to refresh the troops and keep them, you know, happy. I don't know. Nothing like waking up from a coma, all wounded and stuff, and there's a guy in a tuba wearing a tuba standing at the foot of your bed. <laughs> you know, I was just thinking John Philip Sousa, but I, I think this is pre-Sousa. So this, I, I don't even, I can't even imagine what they were playing. Like what, what was like a popular song in 1841? No, <laughs> no idea. What did it sound? I mean, you know, before Philip Sousa, what did military bland, bands play? It's, a, it's an interesting question. Somebody's done a thesis on this before. The new hospital concept complex was designed by John MacArthur, who later became famous for designing Philadelphia City Hall. Okay. Um, he joined the war effort as the architect to the Quartermaster General's Department in Philadelphia and went on to design some 24 hospitals. Um, and the, the Philadelphia area was seen particularly suitable because it had so many existing railways. Um, so he, at Mower, MacArthur created this administrative building surrounded by 50 radiating one-story barrack-like wings. And that reflected contemporary best practice and in institutional planning and echoed the layout of the famous Eastern State Penitentiary, which had been completed just 20 years earlier. So the low-scale decentralized wards offered what we're all learning about, which is so important right now, better ventilation and were believed to be more sanitary. Right. Well, because this wasn't even, I mean, ventilation from infectious disease, but also um, the, when you have people with open wounds and stuff like that, you don't need them in stuffy, closed up spaces. No. And if you have people with infectious diseases where those diseases are carrying, you want to have as much air as possible between them and the other person. Right. And, uh, it's funny because it's like, why are we relearning this right now when we knew this in the Civil War and we built hospitals because of, you know, that reflected that. Right. Um, okay. So let's go to slide five. And that, that is Satterley, dude. This was around the corner from your house. It was between Spruce and Pine and 40th and 44th. And so slide six kind of shows you where it is. And you'll see that there's the Woodlands is right there. And this is kind of before Clark Park was built. But um, so it was kind of just, I would say, probably north of Clark Park. And it over many, many, many acres, 15 acres. Wow. Um, it was, again, the wood construction with the, the long pavilions, though they weren't laid out in the flower um, style and note the tents all around. Mm -hmm. Um, this is kind of not a good story. That's where the indigenous and, um, African-American soldiers went. So even, even in, in healthcare, and we talk about right now, healthcare and, and racism in healthcare, you know, even, even back in the civil war, we had still that same kind of, you know, 
institutionalized racism um, for the troops. So um, this was um, 4,000 beds at its peak and a total of 50,000 men came through um, and it had its own post office and it had its own newspaper called the Weekly Register. And the surgeon in charge, you're going to like this, his name was Isaac Hayes. All right. Yeah, I got a little something for that. Who, who is the man? Can you dig it? Yeah, Isaac Hayes. He was he was kind of a little bit of a badass. I mean, there's I got a picture of him. Look at look at nine. Tell me what you think about Isaac. That's no nine. Okay, I'm looking. I was looking at a nun for a second. Isaac looks like John Wilkes Booth. Oh my god, he does. But it could just be that Civil War handlebar thing with the weird haircuts they had. I mean, those haircuts were horrible. I they were they were very. The haircuts and facial hair were very like West Philly 2013, just <laughs> very bad. Uh, these, so is anything remain of this hospital complex? Don't think so. I think it's all like I, every time I drive to your house, I drive around the neighborhood and I look. I mean, I, I, there's that big pavilion over by Clark Park, but I think it was built after. And then there's all the row houses, which I think must have been built around 1865, like right after the war. Yeah, those and were I think those were even a little bit later. Yeah, yeah. So I think they just built right on top of where that was. Huh. Yep. But he's a little bit of a, you know, he looks like he went to the Arctic. He went to the Arctic and wrote a book about it, and so he sort of had like this you know, at like atmosphere around him that he was a little bit of a badass, but yeah, Isaac Hayes, Isaac Hayes ran the Satterley hospital in West Philadelphia. you damn right. That's right. Can you dig it? Let's play a little Isaac Hayes again. Who, who is the man? That's right. Isaac Hayes. That's the man. All right. So let's get to our person. This is our person. Um, number three, third thing you didn't know. I'm actually keeping track of my numbers, which is really weird because I, I never do this, but I'm, and I'm on track. Um, Philadelphia has, we have our very own Florence Nightingale. And that's who I'm going to be talking about. Her name was Mary, uh, mother Gonzaga Grace. So, uh, again, I wanted to just talk about and give appreciation to our nurses, our hospital staff, um, the people who clean up after people who are sick, um, even administration, administrative personnel, all those people doing work right now, um, trying to make it on themselves, trying to stay healthy themselves in a situation that's really hard and dire. Um, so that's pretty much why I wanted to just focus on on nursing for a little bit. Um, and I, do you know anything about Florence Nightingale? Because I didn't, and I wanted to dig into sort of the beginnings of nursing with the actual Florence Nightingale. So do what do you know about Florence Nightingale? A very little. You've heard of her? Yes. That's almost about it. <laughs> Sad, yeah. So to say. 
Me too. I mean, I, you know, I was like, I've heard of her. Um, I picture her like in a nun's habit or something. I don't know. And in my mind, Molly Pitcher's cousin, right? Isn't that like what? Like who's Molly Pitcher's cousin? That's a joke. It's a bad joke. Forget it. Moving on. Who's Molly Pitcher? (laughs) She, uh, she was like a civil war hero from New Jersey who brought water to the troops or something. And there's all these like things around Red Bank, New Jersey named the Molly Pitcher this and the Molly Pitcher that. Oh, I feel like I should have known about this before these podcasts. Okay, that's fine. Um, I'll find some more about Molly Pitcher. Maybe we'll do another one for oh, her. She, she was, I've uh, heard of her before. There's the thing about her in Valley Forge. This was in Valley Forge. Oh, so this is Revolutionary War time. Yes. So she might be in uh, uh, even earlier nursing before Florence Nightingale. So Florence Nightingale is kind of credited with sort of kicking off nursing as a career. Um, she was British and she went to the Crimean war to tend to soldiers. Um, and so she's like her iconic presentation, like the picture of her, and this is what I had in my mind is her with a lamp, right? And she's walking from room to room at night with her lamp to go check on soldiers um, Wikipedia says Florence laid, laid the foundation for professional nursing, and she came back from the Crimean War with a lot of information that she then turned into a nursing school in 1860 in England. Um, so this was right before our Civil War, um, and it was called sort of the first secular nursing school in the world. So nurses now take what's called the Nightingale Pledge when they are pinned. Right? It's kind of similar to the Hippocratic Oath that oh. doctors take. Yep, It's called the Practical Nurses Pledge, which is a modern version of the Nightingale Pledge. I'm just going to read it. Um, Before God and those assembled here, I solemnly pledge to adhere to the code of conducts, conduct of ethics of the nursing profession, to cooperate faithfully with the other members of the nursing team, and to carry out faithfully and to the best of my ability the instructions of the physician or the nurse who may be assigned to supervise my work. I will not do anything evil or malicious, and I will not knowingly give any harmful drug or assist in malpractice. I will not reveal any confidential information that may come to my knowledge in the course of my work, and I pledge myself to do all in my power to raise the standards and prestige of practical nursing. May my life be devoted to service and to the high ideals of the nursing profession, which I think is a beautiful line. Um, so, so this, so this was 1860. So our civil war was starting about that time and we didn't have in the United States, any trained organizations, uh, any organizations of trained nurses. So, um, a woman named Dorothea Lind Dix uh, dedicated her life to improving conditions of people in prisons, poorhouses, and mental institutions. And in 1861, she was appointed superintendent of female nurses of the human of the Union Army. So they basically found someone who had been doing a lot of work for people, had who sort of been basically nursing to people. And in I don't know if Dix was from Philadelphia, but Philadelphia had all these societies, you know, because there was, 
no kind of infrastructure for for helping people, no kind of welfare infrastructure. So like if you went into prison, for example, you had to kind of pay yourself out and you had to like provide your own food and your own bedding and your own clothing. And so there was a lot of like societies and many of them were religious that would help people in need like the Hebrew Society for Women in Prison, right? To help particularly women who are Hebrew in prison, right, get what they needed. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if sort of out of that, a lot of women who had that experience then decided that they wanted to like turn that into something official. And that's kind of what started to happen at the beginning of the Civil War. So Dorothea Lynde Dix was empowered to create a volunteer nurse corps. And to regulate surprise supplies that were given to the troops. Um, she was not trained in nursing, but she had really good organizational skills. Um, and she was used to dealing with resistant politics and social forces. Um, so on in 1862, she came up with the following strict requirements for nurses. So candidates were to be between. 35 and 50 years old. And you can guess why, right? You can't have the, you know, gorgeous nurse, <laughs> the gorgeous young nurse. Huh. Yeah. So she, she said she, they had to be 35 and they couldn't be older than 50. And they had to be, quote, obedient to rules and, quote, matronly with good character and strong health. Couldn't that 35 year age limit also be because they're much, they're not less likely to be fertile. So they're not going to, you know, have a baby and disappear from the practice or whatever. Right. So, and probably by that time too, a 35 year old woman, I think is, is in the 1860s would probably have been seen as someone who should have quote unquote, should have been married should have had children. Uh -huh. And if she didn't, she probably was never going to, if she hadn't by that time. But so, they were looking for single women though. Or uh, no, no, I don't think they were looking for single. I think it just had to be older than 35, uh, younger than 50, obedient, matronly with good character and strong health. I think you could be married. Got it. Um, you only got 40 cents a day, but I don't know how much that would be worth now. And there was a three month minimum period of service required. So, um, there's another famous nurse, Clara Barton, and she was known as the little lone lady in black silk and angel, of the battlefield. Now she worked on her own separate from the relief and aid societies, um, but she did become instrumental in establishing the American Red Cross. So I thought she she deserved a call a call out, but she wasn't part of Dix's nursing corps. So let's turn to our person, and that is um, Mayor, uh, Mother Gonzaga Grace, and she is on slide seven. And what's the first thing you notice about this picture? Well, she's got the huge, crazy. Uh, Flying trapeze habit. So big. Head thing. Big, crazy, yeah. winged apparatus. It's a winged habit, and it's called a cornet. 
And it started in Paris as a fashion, but then was adopted by the Daughters of Charity, which was a Roman Catholic apostolic society. So that was in France. And they had, I think, established a Sisters of Charity here in Baltimore. And that's where Mary Gonzaga, oh, sorry, she was born Anne Grace, and she was born in 1812 in Baltimore. And um, her father died in 1814, and her mother died in 1816 of yellow fever. So she was, um, so here we go with these outbreaks, right? So people are like, coronavirus is coming back, Right. We know that the Spanish flu came back four times. And in fact, the 1926 Spanish flu was a little bit almost as catastrophic as the 1918 Spanish flu. Well, the same thing with yellow fever. We, You and I talked about the 1797 outbreak, but there was another one in 1815, 1816. And this is how little Anne Grace became um, an orphan. And therefore became more likely to be a nun. Yeah. Well, somebody was already taken. So these sisters of charity, I, you know, they evidently were highly compassionate. Right. And so they would be the kind of people. So when we talked about um, yellow fever, we talked about the African-American community providing all this kind of nursing help to people in yellow fever who were, who were sick with yellow fever. Well, by 1814, they had started to develop these kind of charities and um, religious orders that were starting to do that as well. And Sisters of Charity in Baltimore was doing this compassionate work. And evidently someone had already kind of been administering help to Anne Grace's mom. Um, and so she was taken. And so th- there's a story. Uh, she has a, um, an autobiography. And in the autobiography, they have this story about her. And I think she was maybe four or five when her parents died, right? So wait, she was born in 1812. So she's very, very young. She was like four. And the nun that had been taking care of her um, basically said to her, so her, her, her uh, family came in, right? So they were going to come and take her. And they asked the four-year-old and and Grace what she would like to do. Would she like to go with this nun who had been caring for her mother? Or would she like to go with her family? And at the age of four, she made this decision that she wanted to go live with um, the family of the, the nun. So I think, you know, I think probably it was, you know, she's a four-year-old. She went with someone who she knew. You can't really say what was going on in her mind at the time, but that was an important decision for her life because she went on to become a nun. So she lived with this this young woman nun, um, and she was taken in by a Roman Catholic family. She was baptized Agnes Mary Grace. And then by the time she had reached adulthood, she decided to become a nun in the Sisters uh, of Charity. And she received her cap, uh, which you see here, and she was christened Sister Gonzaga. Um, She taught in Harrisburg for a while. And then a few months later, she was assigned to Philadelphia at St. Joseph's Orphanage. So if you go to slide eight, that is St. Joseph's 
orphanage back in the day and today. And this orphanage operated, and it was the corner of 7th and Spruce. The building is still there. It looks almost exactly the same. And the orphanage operated until 18, sorry, 1984. So it was an uh, an, an orphanage for over a hundred years until the foster system started picking up, I guess, and they stopped having orphanages in Philadelphia. Huh. Um, so by 1843, she became superioress of the orphanage and um, kind of traveled a little bit, but then uh, she basically, that was where she settled. So she basically started to kind of run this place and became the person in charge of this, this spot of this orphanage. Um, so during the civil war, she worked at Satterley and she was in charge of the sisters of charity who staffed the hospital wards and cared for tens of thousands, tens of thousands of wounded and dying soldiers. So evidently they did an amazing job as um, nurses because they had over 50,000 men come through wounded, but only 260 died. Wow. And I, I really couldn't believe that, but I saw it on Philadelphia history. I saw that number quoted in a couple other places. So it's true, which means that these people were being really well cared for. If you had 50,000 people come through in a period of four years, 1861 to 1864, 65, and only 260 died. Did they treat uh, Confederate soldiers too or just Union soldiers? Well, I guess they're they're far enough north of the battle lines that there wouldn't have been any Confederate soldiers winding up in Philadelphia. Is that a safe assumption? I'm not going to claim it. Uh, I didn't, I didn't do research into it. I mean, I, I don't know for sure. I know it was a union hospital, but I mean, there probably were prisoners of war. Wasn't there some Confederate captain who was tried? Maybe I'm thinking world war two. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's a jump. I really don't know. But uh, that's a good question. I'll I'll dig into that after this. Um, I am going to read from her biography, which is The Life of Sister Mary Gonzaga Grace by Eleanor Donnelly. Because, uh, sorry, Donnelly, because there's some interesting stories here that I, I kind of like that give you an idea of like what it was like um, and how much people really loved Sister Mary Grace. So, um and, and I've done a little bit of research. So I read this autobiography. Of course, it's an autobiography. Um, it's it's painting her in this kind of really beautiful light. But there's some other um, there's some other stuff um, online on academia.com and some papers. And I think it was really true that the the troops really loved and appreciated the daughters of charity. Like they became like a known group. Um, and so there was like 50 of them and, and sister Mary, uh, sister uh, Gonzaga Grace was the one in charge of all of them. Um, and they, they evidently were just created this atmosphere at Satterley that just bought, just 
lifted people's spirits. And I, I, I almost am hesitant to say that, but <laughs> because it's like, it seems, but I've read, I've read it in like different um, letters from different people. And it seems like it's really true. So I wanted to like give you an example. So here's a, a tribute from um, uh, James McLean. And he's a veteran of the 142nd Regiment, Pennsylvania Volunteers. Um, he wrote, uh, when he heard of Mother Gonzaga's passing, he wrote, many an old veteran will shed tears when he hears of her death. Mother Gonzaga was a mother to about 50,000 soldiers in the Satterley United States General Army Hospital at 44th and Pine during the years from 1862 to 1865. I am not of the same religion, but those who were under her care, no matter what their creed, when they were called the midnight visits of Mother Gonzaga, as we called her, her silent steps after taps and dim gaslight would at once recognize the familiar countenance surrounded by that white winged headdress. So you can imagine what that was like, right? Like, so you're about to fall asleep and in comes this woman with like almost this like angelic glow with this huge habit, right? And so like, she's got this like almost white halo at night. First, she would bend over the sufferer in order to hear his faintest whisper. And then when some restless patient would toss off the covers, she would in the gentlest manner possible, restore them to their proper places and soothe the wounded man with the softest and most convincing words of cheer. They were all her children, her boys. And I'm glad to say that I have never yet heard of one of her patients who has forgotten what he owed her. She administered medicine when it was required. She loosened a bandage to replace the same, watched a delirious man whenever it was necessary, and did everything that a faithful, modest Christian woman would do. She was always calm and ready. In fact, she was a ministering angel. And when physicians, surgeons, and all human aid failed, she did her part as only she could do it. And again, there's a lot of these kind of stories about her. She, um, they wrote about their first week. So the, the sisters came uh, in 1861 and they, they walked up to the front of Satterley Hospital, about, about 30 of them. And they, they started to have dinner. So this is their first night at Satterley. And they write that by the time we had finished dinner, we found that they were bringing in some sick. And there were about 150. We all went to work to prepare some nourishment for the poor fellows who looked at us in amazement, not knowing what manner of beings we were, probably because they had these big, wide habits. But among them was a French soldier named Pierre who recognized the Daughters of Charity. When the patients found the sisters waiting on them so kindly, they eagerly gave all the assistance in their power. In a short time, the number of our sick had increased to 900. Remember, this is 50 women. Right. Many of them very ill with typhoid fever, severe camp fever, and chronic dysentery. On the 16th of August, over 1,500 sick and wounded soldiers were brought to the hospital most of them from the Battle of Bull Run. Many had already died on the way from exhaustion. Others were in dying state, so that the chaplain, Father McLean, was sent to minister the sacraments. So I think it's quite amazing. I know for myself, this pandemic has made me go and get a therapist. Um, 
<laughs> and I'm just sitting at my house watching TV. But these women were on the front line watching, I can only imagine, horrific uh, injuries, wartime injuries, and then managing outbreaks of smallpox and dysentery. I, I, I find it quite amazing that that at the end of it, when people write about them, they write about their good cheer. I just don't know if I could have good cheer <laughs> through that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like today, very few people have the kind of fervent belief that they would have had. And I think that can sort of give you like, that can give you a place to go with like everything that that's bad that's happening is something that someone else did, right? And now you're serving God and you're helping the people that are wounded. So you're helping. So I think like that's one way to, that maybe they could hold on to something positive is to just say like, we're, we're here, we're helping, we're doing God's will. Um, you know, we're helping these poor souls and the ones who die, we get to pray and make sure they go to heaven too, right? And like, I don't know that the average medical professional has that, that kind of uh, fervent belief now, or like, you know, is sure of what happens after someone dies. No, like, you know what I'm saying? The things that people knew for a fact because of their faith is rare today. Yeah. And then also you're not really allowed to, so say you do have that kind of faith. It's not like you can, you're by law, not allowed to really talk about it. Right. So these women were able to, if they wanted to just pray over someone, they could, right. If they, if they wanted to talk about, you know, the glory of heaven afterwards and give hope to some soldier, they could, but nurses today can't. Um, there, there's a lot of laws that protect protect people from other people's beliefs. Um, but it must be hard. I did see a picture of some nurses praying. Um, they're all like in their gear, all geared out that I guess they kind of formed a, a coalition and they were all, I guess the same religion and they got together in some room in a hospital and just prayed together. But it does make you wonder like how important it is to have some type of sense of, um, I don't know. I guess if you have that kind of faith, you feel like there's a, it's not all for naught. It's not just because the world is crazy. Things are going to get better. There's some type of hope. So, yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's really an important point. Um, and that's probably why. And I think also because of sisterhood, right? I know that whenever I've been in groups of women, um, I always feel, you know, doing something together that that feels good. Like it, it, it's a little bit easier to bear whatever's happening when there's a lot of people bearing it together. And I imagine that like, if, if they had confession, that also was their, their therapy. True. You know, a place to be, to have confidential conversation with someone about your feelings, about right. things you're ashamed of or things you want to repent for. Um, so yeah, like they, they, they had a lot of between that and the, their own, you know, the, like, they, like you said, their sisterhood, but beyond just 
you know, being women who work together, but they live together. They, they literally are sisters hmm. in, in that sense, right? They've, right? they've renounced their family. They've renounced all these other things. And, and, you know, their only family is their religious order. Um, it's a, it's a very different kind of community than a medical professional today, for sure. Wow. I didn't, I didn't think we were going to go deep. Um, are you, like, you're surprising me, Uncle Eddie. So you're, you know that I'm. You're, co- you're convincing me to go take confession. I mean, I was like, this is like, oh my god. Uh, so that's that's what's that's really funny. My atheist brother talked me into going to confession. That's not the message here, Michiko. It's not the message. I know, but it just sounds so great. I mean, or maybe I should just join, just to become a nun. That would make things a little easier. Javi <laughs> um, might have a few things to say about that. Yeah, he might not be happy with that. I've got a couple other stories about Sister Mary Gonzaga. So after the war, um, she did some things that people kind of think are kind of miraculous. Um, so, and she also, she had like this uh, ability to like do pharma. Like she, she could create, uh, she, and she did this at the hospital, but she also did it when she was at the orphanage. She would just mix things together and create baths or create kind of medicines through herbs. So she had that kind of, um, ability as well. But, um, here's some stories that I just picked out of the, the biography. Um, so here's one, a family of means kicked their daughter out of the house because of a lack of virtue, whatever that means. But after a few months, they started freaking out because they were like, we were too harsh and where is our daughter and we can't find her. So they couldn't find her. And in desperation, they turned to mother Gonzaga. So she starts putting out the feelers because she knows a lot of people in the health industry in Philadelphia. And she finds this woman in the hospital for the insane and returns her to her family. Um, So that, you know, the family was just like, Oh my God, we have our daughter back. It's a miracle. Um, another woman came and she had an ulcerated leg and she came to mother Gonzaga going, I know you can heal me. And mother Gonzaga goes, I don't do miracles, but I can give you a salve. So every day the woman came to get her salve on her leg and she healed. So this is part of like her ability to do pharma. Then she brings more people in with the same problem. And so now all these people start coming. So she actually wound up making 80 gallons of medicine, um, to, to kind of provide salves to people, but she also made something that combated smallpox. Um, she was able to make something that fought diphtheria and scarlet fever. So she had knew a little something and I almost feel like, gosh, maybe somebody has her notebook and we can go back and see if there were any kind of things to be learned. Um, what do you mean? What do you, like she just, thought this stuff up she no she she knew professionals she knew indigenous people who knew about herbs like what where did she get this information i don't know i don't know but she did know so that's a good question maybe she did meet some indigenous people i mean she traveled a lot um in the early days she went out to harrisburg she did go to paris for a little while um i know that she you know she she may have met people along the way uh, but for some reason, she just had this, she was able to do these things. So yeah, I don't know where she got it from. And that, and that's the key question, right? I would love to like maybe go back to um, her order and maybe somebody's already done this, but like take a look at her notebook and be like, I wonder what she was concocting um, and maybe where she had learned that from. She, she was, oh, 
She did spend some time in Louisiana. That's true. Okay. Maybe she, yeah, maybe she learned something down there. A little voodoo. Um, but who knows? I mean, that's just conjecture. Don't know. Don't know where she got all that from. On the 26th of July. Oh, I forgot to put the date. Oh, my God. 1877, I believe. She fell and broke her hip. And then she was never quite the same. And she died 15 months later in the building uh, at 7th and Spruce. And the congressional record writes, in her demise, there passed out of this life a woman of boundless charity whose ministrations among thousands of Union and Confederate soldiers contributed a note of beauty to the many harassing details of the war. And that's what uh, Rhode Island Congressman Ambrose Kennedy wrote in the congressional record in 1918. Hmm. So that's our very own Florence Nightingale. Right here in Philadelphia. I have a song for her. Mary ready? Darker Grace. Yeah, I'm ready. Here we go. Another famous Mother Superior. I couldn't think of any better song for her. What is this from? Sound of Music. Remember, like, Mother Superior was talking to what's her name, and she was like, It's okay. You don't, you're not made out to be a nun. Go raise those kids. It's all right. You don't remember? I do not. Oh, I saw that movie like so many times. So I was like, (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's all. That's all I got for you today. Sister Mary Gonzaga, I hope you enjoyed this story. I did. And uh, again, we just want to give a shout out to our health professionals. Thank you for taking care of us. And uh, if you're praying for us, thank you for praying for us. And uh, we appreciate you a lot. Yes, thank you. And I mean, this, yeah, this is like my house is almost inside where this field hospital was. Um, It's like weird to think about. I take, I've taken many walks to clear my head in the last couple months, late at night when the only time, only safe time to actually go outside without a mask. (laughs) Uh, And I'm, you know, walking up and down these streets, uh, like right through where this hospital was. It's like, you never... I always assumed like whenever you, whenever I've lived anywhere, I've always assumed, well, this was once farmland. You know, you always think that's what it used to be. It was a pasture. It was this, it was that. And then it was developed, but you forget that a lot of things were developed sites like a dozen times over had all these different uses on them before the street grid was laid out, you know? Yeah. And then I think about like the fact, I, I, the fact that it was such a big institution, I think Mower and Satterley were the largest hospitals in the world at the time. I mean, and the fact that we don't really even know that, right. So like, I, I find it that fun, fascinating that we don't like, I, I, I would think that there'd be more than just a, like a historical marker, but when you have an old town like Philly, you know, you're right. There's like layers and layers and layers of stuff and stuff gets built up and torn down and built up and torn down. Um, 
what were we talking about? Somebody who was um, um, the leeches that were being grown in West Philly for the 1797 yellow fever epidemic. So we had the leech farm. And then we had Satterley. <laughs> then mm-hmm. we had, <laughs> and now we have row houses in Clark Park. And who knows what's going to be there a hundred years from now. I wonder if the surname leech meant that your like ancestors were leech farmers. I don't know anybody whose last name is leech. Do you? We have a, uh, we have a congressman. Uh, Dalen. Wait, wait, I'm now, now I'm hold on. Hold on. But leech is spelled differently than leech. L E A C H versus L E E C H. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, they're different. <laughs> so that'd be great. Hey, you're a leech. Were your was your family leech farmers? <laughs> <laughs> Smack. Didn't your, family used to be dung, didn't your family used to be dung merchants? Isn't that what they did? <laughs> they bought and sold dung as their form of livelihood. That's nice. Oh uh, yeah. No. no. <laughs> Don't think so. Oh, that's French for chamber pot. Right. I see what oh. your family is Got it. Cool. wonder what Benaric means in Polish. I do know what Benaric means in Polish. Does it mean leech farmer? No, it means barrel maker. Oh, that's cool. It's the, it's the Polish version of the name Cooper. No kidding. Well, that's what a Cooper is, is a barrel maker. And... Let me tell you something. Barrels, I've never tried to make a barrel, but I understand the woodworking that goes into a barrel. That's not a, that's not an easy craft. You got to be really strong, easy. right? Say what? Yeah. You got to be super strong too, right? To it's bend that metal fun. around the It's yeah? the I mean maybe the 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 hoops I think were already made and they were like hammered down onto the barrel, but the hardest part to my mind was the woodworking behind making the staves, the actual sides of the barrel. Um, were bent. And of course, you know, each of those little staves, there might be 40 of them that go around a barrel. Each one has to be beveled, right? To form this round shape out of this square edged wood. And the bevel changes as the barrel goes into the middle, the bulgy part of it. So it has what's called a rolling bevel that starts very flat and then gets kind of sharp in the middle and then gets flat again. Like not easy stuff. Not easy stuff at all. So, you know, a little bit of pride in the Benaric surname there. Awesome. Well, that was a a little bit of a tangent. I think we're going to have to say goodbye to everybody. Yes. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we'll see you the next time, which hopefully will not be five months in a pandemic and social unrest later. So we'll just cross our fingers about that. (laughs) And I will keep my woodworking tangents to under 30 seconds at a time. Yeah, I think you did pretty good. That was about 30 seconds. <laughs> All right. Um, talk to you later. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.